0: Today on Off the Cuff classified, President Trump's former attorney claims that Robert Mueller is threatening a grand jury subpoena. American public schools are in worse shape than anyone thought. I mean, really, really bad shape. Kanye West is under fire again, this time for his comments on slavery. And members of the Democratic Party are demanding that Hillary Clinton return millions of dollars to the DNC. Robert Mueller, the special counsel, will now apparently stop at nothing to take down President Donald Trump. Now, look, when Mueller first began his investigation back uh, before I was uh, here on The Rebel, I had my radio show. Robert Mueller, I gave the benefit of the doubt to Robert Mueller. Robert Mueller had, well, he had a reputation, uh, not all good. Many people said he was a guy with integrity, an honest actor, an effective investigator, uh, uh, an ethical attorney. You know, I had my doubts about Mueller. I saw the way he handled the anthrax investigation in 2001. I remembered how he ran Whitey Bulger and John Connolly. Uh, you know, Jimmy Bulger went away on the lamb for 17 years, 1994 to 2011, while John Connolly went to jail. Uh, Bulger now serving time, of course, in federal prison after being caught by the FBI in Santa Monica in 2011. And, uh, but I said, you know what, hey, sometimes you got to lie down with dogs to catch fleas. And that's often the case in investigations. You've got to get your hands dirty, dealing with the wise guys, dealing with the drug dealers. And sometimes kind of, you have to cut deals with the devil that you don't want to cut to get many more bad guys. The government also did it with Sammy the Bull Gravano to get John Gotti. It's the nature of the beast. It's the business, right? And I started seeing who he was adding to his team. The farthest left of the farthest left, most namely Andrew Weissman. Now Weissman is a... Uh, almost identical to Mueller, but a little bit worse. Weissman has a history of being excoriated by judges for withholding exculpatory evidence. He's had convictions overturned. He's been admonished. And what uh, Weissman did with Greg Scarpa and Linda Vecchio was very similar to what uh, uh, Mueller did with Jimmy Bulger and John Connolly. Now, if you don't know who Greg Scarpa and Linda Vecchio are, I'll tell you. This is a New York-based mob. uh, Greg uh, Scarpa was a capo, wise guy, uh, you know, street captain in the Italian mafia. Lynn DeVecchio, an FBI agent who allegedly was in bed with Scarpa, very dirty together. Scarpa died in jail of uh, throat cancer. DeVecchio is still around, lives in Tampa, Florida. I did an expose on my radio show about these guys a few years back, and I get a call from Lynn DiVecchio, the agent. He wanted to buy me dinner in Tampa. Tell his side of the story. I had no interest in in speaking to DiVecchio, but I reached out to Joe Coffey. Joe Coffee legendary New York City detective, took down the mob back in the 70s, also worked on the Son of Sam case. Joe was an organized crime major case detective. Uh, you've probably seen Joe on television. Uh, he's on A&E, he's on Discovery Channel, all these mob shows. Sadly, about a week or two after my conversation with Joe, where he said, I wouldn't go sit with Vecchio. That guy is filthy, he's dirty. Now, again, this is all alleged. Vecchio has never been convicted of anything because all the witnesses died. But uh, I trusted Joe. I got to know Joe. Joe actually uh, was a friend of my father, same group of friends. And I got to know Joe. And I called Joe. I said, hey, Joe, would you go sit with Linda Vecchio? That guy's no friend of mine. I'd never sit with that guy. That guy is as filthy as they come. So Joe sadly passed away. He was very ill. And a couple of weeks after that call, sadly, passed away. This is going back to 2015, 2016-ish. But uh, these are the guys Weissman ran. He ran guys as dirty, if not dirtier. Then, Deve- uh, then Bulger and Connolly, Scarpa every bit as deadly as Bulger and and appears alleged that Lynn DeVecchio every bit as dirty as John Connolly. And needless to say, I never went and had that steak with DeVecchio. Uh, maybe one day I will. <laughs> I'd like to hear his story. So uh, that might be a dinner I'll have sooner rather than later because uh, these guys intrigue the hell out of me and I'm going to hit them with some hard questions. But uh, these are the people that Mueller started to put on his team. And I became really, really concerned. Then I watched Mueller's incredibly heavy-handed tactic, right? Uh, Having his investigators kick in the door of Paul Manafort and his wife at 5 a.m., 4.45 a.m., whatever it was. Now, you don't do that in white-collar cases. Agents do typically come early in the morning. They give you a heads up, and they knock on the door, and they sit down normally and they have a cup of coffee, and the agents go through things. They don't come in guns blazing, white-collar criminal cases against senior citizens. It's just not the way it's done. I happen to know an older couple who were investigated for some, uh, uh, it, it, not really insider trading, but failure to disclose certain things on the stocks their firm was trading. Subsequently, they were exonerated. They were fine. The FBI did raid their home at five o'clock in the morning. This this beautiful mansion on the postal. They worked very hard, did very well. And it was during the Obama administration and there was a, really a war on wealth. It's a, a series of segments I'll do uh, soon enough. And this poor couple, who did nothing but work their whole lives, uh, made their money by going into the office at 6 a.m. every day and leaving at 10 p.m., were subject to about three years of of intense investigation, about $2 million in legal fees, until a letter came from the IRS, the SEC, and the FBI saying, oops, our bad, you did nothing wrong. But they were raided at 5 a.m. There were no guns. There were no doors being kicked in. The FBI rang the bell at their gate, and they went out, and FBI agent... They told me it was very nice. They knew they did nothing wrong. The lead agent said, look, I don't see anything here. The IRS wants the case. I'm really sorry. I have to be doing this. They made the agent coffee. They sat there and showed pictures of their kids and grandkids. And they were subsequently cleared. And that agent actually uh, called them and apologized again. So that's the way white collar cases typically go down. What happened with Manafort and his wife and, and my friend's story Is one of many. I've heard the same way from even Wall Street guys I know that were never uh, implicated in anything, but the FBI raided the offices. Uh, You know, they would just sit there and chat with the agents, and the agents would say, Yeah, you know, it it was never gunpoint and and harassing, and what, what we saw with Manafort and his wife. That made me disgusted. It made me beyond uncomfortable because it's simply not the way it's done. You do that for one reason to intimidate. You do that to mob bosses like Greg Scarper and Whitey Bulger. You do that to drug kingpins. You do that to gun runners. You do that to human traffickers. You don't do that for 11-year-old white-collar crimes that took place offshore. You just don't do that. Paul Manafort may or may not have done the things he's accused of. He may have engaged in financial misdealings, but he's never been accused of being violent. That would have warranted a, a, uh, an entry team with firearms executing a no-knock warrant at 5 a.m. That, that showed me the character of Robert Mueller and Andrew Weissman and how they operate not to find justice and the truth, but to intimidate and terrify people into doing their bidding. That's not how our system is supposed to work. It's just not how our system is supposed to work. So Mueller has gone on and then he decided to start prosecuting people on process crimes when he couldn't find them on the things that he thought they did. But what's a process crime? You hear that term quite a bit. You hear it in the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN. you hear it even more in conservative media when they complain, when we complain in conservative media about process crimes. And and I've been remiss in not explaining. All that really means is you're not being charged with an overt act. You're not being charged with stealing something or uh, engaging a bad guy or plotting a criminal conspiracy. You're merely being charged with violating a very ambiguous, uh, oftentimes, and random procedural statute. And in this case, uh, false statements, misleading false statements to federal investigators. Now, remember, James Comey and Peter Stroke said on the record, not on the record in court, but we have text messages and emails now that have been released by DOJ. They said on the record that they did not feel that General Flynn lied. We're talking about General Flynn being charged with misleading statements to investigators. They didn't feel he lied. I believe Comey also said that in one of his bouts of testimony. But eight to nine months later, Robert Mueller subjectively reinterpreted the statute and felt that General Flynn did lie and charged him with a process crime. Now, I don't believe General Flynn lied. General Flynn was was, uh, met in his office by two FBI agents who began a conversation with him. From everything I understand it, he felt they were meeting him as the national security advisor. Talk about a host of issues. Very common for FBI counter-intel people to meet with the National Security Advisor. General has never been charged for his conversations with Sergey Kislyak. In fact, those were all deemed to be legal. Those were all deemed to be facilitated by the incoming administration to jumpstart foreign policy. Perfectly legal. Donald Trump was the president-elect. He was allowed to begin engaging in the early stages of foreign policy, having his people meet one another setting agenda items. He wasn't uh, allowed to to engage in foreign policy. He wasn't sworn in, but there was nothing remotely improper. And in fact, it was what he was supposed to be doing by getting his national security advisor, meeting the different ambassadors and setting the stage for when he was about to be inaugurated in a matter of weeks to have them come into the White House. I mean, obviously you're not going to have people come in cold. You want your people to start introducing. If I'm right, I I was brought on here to the rebel. We knew there was a week or two to start the show. I started exchanging emails with producers, the executives, the editors, started you know, bouncing ideas. What are my content ideas? What do they expect from me? What do I expect from them? How should my lighting be set? Adjusting the color uh, and the white balance on the camera. All the things you do to get ready for your launch. And that's all General Flynn was doing. General Flynn was simply doing, putting all those little mechanical pieces in place so that when President Trump was sworn in They could hit the ground running that afternoon. But every administration has done in the history of the presidency. In fact, it would have been incompetence to not do it. But the left wants you to think that there was some massive plot to undermine the U.S. It's so stupid. Well, Robert Mueller couldn't handle the fact that he couldn't, in my opinion anyway, find any wrongdoing on the part of General Flynn. So he railroads the general by charging him eight months later with false statements that I don't believe the general ever made. I think the general said, I do not recall... I don't think that's according to the transcript. And Robert Mueller charged somebody with not remembering something or remembering it differently than Mueller's investigators. It is a travesty of justice like we've never seen. But that's all Mueller's had beyond financial crimes with Manafort. Robert Mueller does not have one instance of Russia collusion. Now they point to, he indicted 13 Russians. Okay, so what? Russia meddling in our election. Russian bots, and by the way, He indicted 13 Russians. We don't even know if they were people. They could have been anonymous bot accounts. They could have been computer code. He indicted 13 Russian somethings. None of them will ever see the inside of a courtroom. It's doubtful they even exist, that they're even real people. No, we've never gotten any names. We've never gotten any proof that these were any more than one developer sitting in Siberia that, that that developed thirteen uh, uh, personalities on the internet. It is ridiculous. That indictment was a waste of taxpayer time and money. No justice will ever be served, and all it does is further the bogus collusion narrative. There's nothing there. When you get to the American actors, no one has been indicted for collusion, and we know Russia meddled in the election. We hack them. They hack us. China hacks us all. Iran hacks us all. We hack them back. It is so stupid. For those of us who understand how this works that we lose our voices (laughs) reporting on it because we're so frustrated. So Mueller, knowing he has none of that, now decides to threaten President Trump with a grand jury subpoena. This from Fox News. Special counsel Robert Mueller told President Trump's legal team that he could subpoena the president, might like to see him try that, to appear before a grand jury if Trump refuses an interview with Mueller's team. Trump's former lead attorney, John Dowd, told the Associated Press Tuesday night. Breaking story. Now, I would love to see Robert Mueller try to subpoena a sitting president. That would go to the Supreme Court. And President Trump, like everyone else, has the right to submit writing, uh, answers in writing. You have a Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate yourself. Robert Mueller cannot demand you go to a grand jury if you don't want to sit with him. I mean, the, the, uh, an average person could be subpoenaed, but not the president of the United States. It's executive privilege. Now, what does a grand jury subpoena do that the interview with Mueller's team doesn't. Incredibly significant and dramatically different. You're not entitled to the benefit of counsel in a grand jury proceeding, it's a prosecutor's forum. It's a prosecutor's forum. Your lawyer can be there, but they can only object in most cases to the form of the question and nothing else. In other words, uh, your lawyer, if, if the prosecutor says, Where were you on the night of September 16th, uh, 2017, when uh, Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak was having a drink at Trump International in D.C.? Your lawyer can't object to that. However, if the prosecutor says, did you facilitate the drink Sergei Kislyak had on September 17th, 2016 at Trump International in D.C., your attorney can say, I object to the form of the question. It's misleading or it's leading or it implies something. And that's really the limit of what they can object to in a grand jury proceeding. And oftentimes that's restricted even more. And so it's a very dangerous place for a suspect to be under grand jury subpoena. You can be compelled to testify, but they have nothing on Trump. What Mueller is now doing, strikes, I mean, it sticks a very sharp dagger in the heart of our criminal justice system. He's investigating a person Not a crime. Mueller is going to try to throw the Constitution out the window, ring and squeeze Donald Trump until he finds something, a misstatement, something that he can charge the president on that will be easily thrown out, but that will make a case for impeachment for the Democrats. That's all this is about. Mueller is now investigating a person, not a crime. And that's not how our system works. When I walked into work with the NYPD, I I didn't get a piece of paper. They didn't tell me, hey, Cardillo, John Smith, that's your target today. Find whatever you can on John Smith. We're not a private investigative agency, law enforcement. No, it's, hey, Cardillo, there was a robbery. Here's the address. Go find out who did it. Not go find out if John Smith ever committed a robbery. Or find out if John Smith ever had an unpaid parking ticket. Or find out if John Smith ever jaywalked. Not the way our system works. That is the very definition of a witch hunt. That is the very definition of a witch hunt. They've demonized Donald Trump. They've called him a witch. And now they're out to prove that he is. And if that means tying rocks around his legs and throwing him in a lake, and if he's not a witch, if he's a witch, he can rise to the top. And if he's not a witch, he sinks and dies. And that was how they did it in the Salem witch trials. So it was lose-lose. So if you got out of your shackles, rose to the top and caught your breath, you were a witch, you were burned at the stake. And if you sunk to the bottom, you died. And that is exactly what they're doing to Donald Trump and why many of us feel this is absolutely a witch hunt. Now, look, there are some interesting developments in this case because they have um, uh, asked for more time to sentence General Flynn. What am I talking about? Well, General Flynn pled guilty to that bogus process crime. His sentencing was supposed to go down yesterday on that. That was after one delay because there was a change in judges, right? Judge Rudolph Contreras recused We suspect because he was the judge who signed the FISA warrant, we also now know he's a longtime close personal friend of embattled FBI agent Peter Stroke. The new judge, Emmett Sullivan, is known for spanking down the government for withholding exculpatory evidence. And one of uh, Judge Sullivan's first rulings was to demand. Mueller's team give him all evidence of exculpatory, or all exculpatory or potentially exculpatory evidence, things that they didn't think were exculpatory, but the judge said, I'll review these in camera, in private, in chambers. I'll review these and I'll determine what's exculpatory. That leads many of us to believe the judge doesn't trust Mueller's team. Doesn't trust Mueller's team at all. Now, the left is salivating. Natasha Bertrand over at the, uh, over at the um, Atlantic. Oh, this means that General Flynn is cooperating and everybody's going down and that's why they need more time. Oh, nonsense. If they wanted General Flynn to cooperate, They would have twisted his arm on a real charge, not on a bogus process crime for which he would never serve a day in jail as a lieutenant general who honorably served this nation for four decades. That is not it at all. That's not it at all. What I think this is stemming from is the fact that the Mueller team, the Mueller team is in a lot of trouble. I think the 44 questions, 48 and 49 questions leaking to the New York Times, combined with the fact that Mueller's investigators have found nothing. And we now know, we now know there was even more impropriety on the part of Mueller's team. We now know, or we strongly suspect exculpatory evidence was withheld. We now have the testimony of James Comey and Peter Stroke or, or statements saying they didn't believe General Flynn lied. <clears throat> we now have James Comey, Peter Stroke, Andrew McCabe under a criminal referral from Congress to the FBI, Andrew McCabe with an Inspector General referral to DOJ for prosecution. Uh, what I meant was Congress referred Comey, Stroke, Loretta Lynch, Page, McCabe to DOJ for prosecution. Stro- uh, McCabe again referred by the Inspector General for prosecution, Comey potentially being referred for prosecution. He's already been referred by Congress, potentially by the inspector general for prosecution. I think General Flynn's lawyers are saying, hold on a second. We don't even know if we want to keep this plea in place. We might file an appeal. There's a lot of dirt happening over there. A lot of things were going on that we didn't know when we took this plea. A lot, a lot of impropriety is happening. We knew nothing about this. We need another, we, we need some more time, Your Honor, to see what shakes out before we go ahead and agree to have our client sentenced. Hell, Something might break in the next two weeks that necessitates you vacating this plea and dismissing the general's charges. And that's what many of us believe is going on. Not as, as Bertrand over at the Atlantic's wishful thinking says that, that uh, General Flynn is cooperating and everybody's going to jail. I don't believe that for one second. If General Flynn had something that would have landed people in jail, General Flynn would have spoken already. It would have, it would have happened because Mueller has, I believe, three targets, three trophies, three heads he wants on the wall. Donald Trump, President of the United States, his son, Donald Trump Jr., and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. And I say this because I truly believe that Mueller is no longer interested in justice. Mueller is no longer interested in the truth. Mueller now has one mission, and that is to take Donald Trump out before the midterms, allow Democrats to take over the House, preferably the Senate as well, impeach Donald Trump, and put an end to his presidency that every day is putting an end to the deep state. The nation's public schools are in far worse shape than anyone thought. And I'm going to tell you, after I read you these abysmal and really tragic numbers, I'm going to tell you why that is. Not why I think that is, why that is. Okay, this from the National Assessment of Educational Progress test results, test results released by the U.S. Department of Education. You ready for this? Sixty five percent of eighth graders in American public schools are not proficient in reading. Sixty seven percent of those same eighth graders are not proficient in math and in urban areas, predominantly African-American, Hispanic areas, the numbers are even Worse, from the study among the 27 large urban districts for which the Department of Education published the 2017 NAEP test scores, the Detroit public school system had the lowest percentage of students who scored proficient or better. not just proficient. That's not satisfactory. That's not above average. That's not average. Okay, who scored proficient or better in math and the lowest percentage who scored proficient or better in reading. Only... 5% of the Detroit public school eighth graders were proficient or better in math. Only 7% were proficient or better in reading, meaning, of course, that 95% of Detroit's public school eighth graders can't read at their reading level. And 93% can't solve math problems at the level of other eighth graders around the country. In Cleveland, only 11% of the eighth graders were proficient. Uh, Were proficient or better in math, and only 10% were proficient or better in reading. In Baltimore, only 11% proficient or better in math, 10% proficient or better in reading. In Fresno, 11% for math, 14% for reading. Wow, wow. Now, uh, uh, this is terrible. Now, the urban district that came in number one, which is still abysmal, Charlotte, North Carolina, 41% of the students proficient or better in math. Austin, Texas, number two, 38%. San Diego, number three, 36%. None of these have gotten anywhere near 50%. Charlotte, the best, still nine points short. New York City, 28%. Hillsborough County, Florida, 29%. Uh, Chicago, 27%. Chicago ranked number eight. Miami-Dade, 24. Los Angeles, 20. District of Columbia, 20%. Let me tell you where these cities rank, the big cities. Boston ranked number fourth, only 33% of the students proficient. New York City ranked seventh, 28% of the students proficient. Chicago, number eight, uh, 27%. Denver, Colorado, number nine on the list with 26% proficiency. Miami-Dade County, number 12 on the list, 24% proficiency. Houston, Texas, Hyde for number 12, 24%. Los Angeles, number 16 on the list, 20% proficient. Tied Washington, D.C., L.A. and D.C. tied at 16. They also tied Dallas, number 20. uh, I'm sorry, they tied Dallas at number 16 with 20% proficiency. Atlanta, number 19 on the list, 19% proficiency. Number 21, Philadelphia, 16% proficiency. 22, Milwaukee, 12%. Number 24, Cleveland, 11%. 20, number 24 on the list, Baltimore, with 11%. Number 27, Detroit, Detroit with 5%. The list was pretty much identical for reading. Now, this uh, tells you something, doesn't it? These are also the places with decade upon decade upon decade of democratic rule. These are also the places where the teachers' unions have a stranglehold on education. And therein lies the problem. The American Federation of Teachers is run by Randy Weingarten, one of Hillary Clinton's best friends. In New York City, the nation's largest public school system, about 250,000 members uh, of faculty and staff belong to the United Federation of Teachers. Okay? New York City public school system is so big, it needs its own union. You've got the United Federation of Teachers, of which Randy Weingarten used to be president. He then moved over to the American Federation of Teachers, become the president of the national organization, not the largest in the country's New York City uh, union. Here's what gets really, really interesting. You want to see what a mess this is. The United Federation of Teachers in New York City is one of the very few, if not the only place, very few places, if not the only place, where the two biggest, most socialist labor unions, AFL-CIO and the SEIU, intersect. Yeah, they intersect. And here's how. If you're a member of the United Federation of Teachers in New York City, which is controlled by the SEIU, the Service Employees International Union, radically far-left organization, you're a member of the UFT, you're also a member of the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers. Their membership is inclusive of one another. The American Federation of Teachers falls under the umbrella of the AFL-CIO. Think about that for a moment. A quarter million far-left radicals in the New York City public school system. I've never met a conservative. I'm sure there's a member or two in there that is a conservative. I've never met him. Let's say 95% of those 250,000 members of the United Federation of Teachers, who are also members of the American Federation of Teachers, those 200 and some odd thousand radical far-leftists are the nexus at which very socialist AFL-CIO and the very socialist SEIU meet. Not a few people in an office. It's hundreds of thousands of members paying dues to both organizations, hundreds of thousands of members who control the largest public school system in this nation, who control education of millions of students. And in that system alone, they could only achieve a ranking, a ranking out of the 30-some-odd schools ranked number 11 with 28% proficiency in reading, and 28% proficiency in math. You tell me radical far-left unions are good for America. Continue to tell me that after reading these numbers. Every time school choice becomes an issue, these unions, the AFT and the UFT, step in to crush it. Every time we talk about charter schools, they step in to crush it. Every time Betsy DeVos, the Secretary of Education, who's not a rabid far leftist as was Arnie Duncan in the Obama administration. Every time she goes out to speak, these groups, AFL-CIO, SCIU, American Federation of Teachers, United Federation of Teachers, they launch an assault on her. They, they sponsor protests, protests that have become violent, that have threatened Betsy DeVos' life. She's a wealthy woman. She had to put her own bill to fly private with her own security detail because of these radical lunatics. And the only people suffering here about the unions. I've watched New York City public school teachers who were accused of child molestation when we had overwhelming evidence be able to sit in a cafeteria or a faculty lounge, collect their pension, or well, collect their salary pending their pension, while other faculty and administrators walked in and joked around with them and acted like nothing was wrong. Were child molesters. They were child molesters, but the radical leftists, they don't care about that. These people could not care less about the kids. They care more about their own union dues, their own socialist power. Now, remember, these are very, very powerful unions. My God, what would have happened if Hillary Clinton was elected? People don't remember this. Well, I shouldn't say people don't remember this. Many don't because uh, history moves on and 9-11 happened a year or two later. But Hillary Clinton announced her run for Senate in New York State on stage with Randy Weingarten. She solved it a soft announce. Randy Weingarten had a group of teachers. It was terrible event. I remember it. And are you going to run? Are you going to run? And then it was all staged. And Hillary was like, I am and kind of nodding. She was, and she did the official announcement later. And all the radical leftist teachers were cheering in the room. The best they could achieve is 28% proficiency in math and reading for their students. And in the areas that are uh, the census tracts that are predominantly African-American, those numbers plummet. This is disgraceful. This is disgraceful, but what this really is, when you look at cases like this, when you look at the Democratic Party, that's what they want, right? They want to control the children. They want to keep them stupid. Because if you keep African-American kids below proficiency levels in math and reading, what are you guaranteeing? You're guaranteeing that they're on welfare their whole lives. They can't work. And ultimately, they're dependent on the state. And the state grows. The state grows considerably want single payer if you're a Democrat, right? So you can have death panels. So you can decide which of these people gets to live and die if they're sick. Say what's really sick? The left wing ideology is really, really sick. This is tangible proof of the agenda of the left. We cannot let this happen here. We cannot let this happen here. This shows us what the left is really about. They want to keep people uneducated, dependent upon government. They want to run your health care. They want to decide when you live and die. These are not conspiracy theories. These are not conspiracy theories. Do your own research. Proof group is right there in the numbers. Poor Kanye West is under fire again. Kanye can't get a break. Man, I, I've never thought there'd be a time in history where I would, A, support, and B, feel really bad for Kanye West, but I do. So this comes after Kanye West showed up uh, yesterday at TMZ's offices, Los Angeles. And he made really controversial, according to the mainstream media, but I don't think they were controversial at all. I think they were spot on comments about slavery. TMZ asked Kanye, and you know how TMZ films, uh, the the Harvey Levin shows, it's in their offices. It's a really cool format. I like the dynamic nature of how TMZ films. Levin is standing there interacting with his team, and they're commenting on what they're watching. It's one of the better, I think one of the better visuals in terms of energy on air. I I really like that format. Uh, So they asked Kanye West about his support for President Trump, and Kanye said, quote, when you hear about slavery for 400 years, for 400 years? That sounds like a choice, like you were there for 400 years and it's all of you, like we're mentally in prison, like slavery goes too direct to the idea of blacks. So prison is something that unites us as one race, blacks and whites being one race. We're the human race. Now, this caused one of the TMZ staffers to argue with Kanye West. But I think Kanye West was right. Now, Kanye West came with Candace Owens. So the interview was controversial, right? Uh, he, he was filming, somebody at TMZ says, he was filming TMZ Live, which is always filmed in the office, and he just stood up and walked around and pretty much did the interview for the entire office. I mean, this is, uh, I don't mind what he did. So one of the TMZ staffers, Van Lathan, uh, so Kanye West said, quote, do you feel that I'm feeling? Do you feel that I'm being free and thinking free? Van Lathan, TMZ employee said, I actually don't think you're thinking anything. I think what you're doing right now is actually the absence of thought. And the reason that I feel like that is, Kanye, you're entitled to your opinion. You're entitled to believe whatever you want. But there's fact and real life consequence behind everything you just said. While you are making music and being an artist and living the life that you've earned by being a genius, the rest of us in society have to deal with these threats to our lives. We have to deal with the marginalization that has come from 400 years of slavery that you said for our people was a choice. Frankly, I'm disappointed and I'm appalled, brother. And I'm unbelievably hurt by the fact that you have morphed into something to me that's not real, end quote. This guy Van Lathan is wrong and Kanye West is right because if you read what Kanye West is saying or was saying unemotionally, what he was saying was exactly what Candace Owen said in that video. The people that are complaining about slavery today never experienced slavery. If you're enslaving yourself, it's in your own mind. Look, Italians suffered when they got here. They were called WAPs without papers. Uh, there were signs Italians need not apply. The Irish suffered when they came to America. The Jews suffered when they came to America. It wasn't uncommon outside of certain areas of New York City to see signs that would say Irish, Italians, and Jews need not apply. Go back to where you came from. But you know what they did? They didn't enslave themselves mentally. They said, oh yeah, screw you. So the Irish, they took over the police and fire departments. The Italians took over certain businesses. Now, I'm not going to say that it wasn't without a little, and and the Jews alongside of them, right? These three ethnic groups, they would battle each other, but they often worked together in New York City and in Chicago and other cities like that. Now, let's be realistic. A lot of it uh, was based on organized crime, but much more of it was based on legitimate business enterprises. And oftentimes, Those organized criminals, well, they wanted their kids to be anything but organized criminals. So you had Italian mobsters and Jewish mobsters and Irish mobsters making a lot of money, whether it was bootlegging or numbers rackets or loan sharking, putting their kids through very, very good schools up to Ivy League schools. And their kids were coming out as doctors and attorneys and CPAs, business owners. And that's how those immigrant groups, even though they were as oppressed as any other, made it. That's how they made it. And now we see where the Italians and the Irish and the Jews are in America. They are some of the most successful immigrant groups. We see that again with another really great immigrant group living down here in South Florida. I'm fortunate to have many Cuban friends. I think Cubans are one of the greatest immigrant groups to ever come to the United States. They fled communism. Now, I'm not talking about the criminals that came in the Mario Boatlift. I'm talking about those people that were in Cuba under Batista and who came the united states predominantly south florida with pockets in the new york and new jersey area fleeing communism fleeing castro's revolution these are some of the most successful people i have ever met i have uh many friends down in miami cuban americans who are incredibly wealthy incredibly wealthy everyone in their family is not just uh doesn't just have a, 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 a an advanced degree but a typically professional it's a cpa it's an attorney it's a doctor Cubans are one of the most successful immigrant groups. You know what you don't hear from the Cuban community? Whether they be light skin or dark skin, you never hear them say, oh my God, communism took my country away. I've got to go on public assistance. They would be mortified to do that. These are people, their culture instilled in them, success. you are coming to the US. The US has given you an opportunity. You better work for it. In fact, bar none, Every one of my Cuban friends down in Miami is very successful. They are very successful. Six-figure earners, at least, many of them, their families are multi-millionaires. They own properties all over the place. They're physicians, they're attorneys, they're, they're bankers. They never did. They never said, oh, we don't speak language. I mean, they came here not even speaking the language. And they succeeded wildly. It's a work ethic. So Kanye West is right. I'm sorry to say it. But he's 100%. No, you don't, I'm not sorry to say it. I'm sorry it needs to be said. I'm sorry for Black America that it needs to be said. You don't see crime in the Cuban communities like you do in Black America. You drive down to Little Havana in Miami. Now, I've got a bad rap with Scarface and all that. But if you drive down to Little Havana now, Little Havana, a place that when I first moved to Miami uh, back in 2004, well, it was not a rough area, but a lower middle class area. What happened there was all of those wealthy Cubans I talk about said, hey, you know what? We need to really revitalize the area. This is our heritage. If you go to Little Havana now, it is one of the trendiest strips of any city in the United States. Outstanding restaurants, really cool hip bars. A friend of mine just opened a retro donut shop down there. It was an old 1960s, 50s, and 60s Miami donut brand that he brought back with a partner. His family actually owned the brand. He's a bit of an older guy. They brought that brand back. It's booming. There's a line out the door. Some of the coolest spots you will ever go to, in Little Havana, Because a Cuban community, came successful, and then they said, now let's work on our heritage. Let's revitalize these areas. Kanye West is essentially telling Black America to do the same thing. Get out of your own heads. No, you were never slaves. You're all Americans. Many of you who are engaging in these protests against Candace Owens are doing it on college campuses. Colleges you attend because you grew up middle class or upper middle class, the only oppression you're facing is at your own hand. That's what Kanye West is saying. And it's a sad day that this guy Van Lathan at TMZ, now think about it, this guy Van Lathan works for TMZ. He's on television. He probably went to a very good school. Probably worked really hard to get this job. He was probably much better at other people his age, trying to go into the same field. He was much better than they were, and he got picked up by a top-tier entertainment show. He, is living, he doesn't even understand that he's proving Kanye West's point. Here's a guy who succeeded, who's still telling the world, I'm less. I'm less because of something that happened hundreds of years ago. And without even realizing it, this poor guy is proving Kanye's point. It's really mind blowing and it's very, very tragic. And then we look, I bring it up all the time. We look at the black on black crime stats. We look at the numbers and I don't know how you solve a problem. I don't know how you solve a problem when a megastar and a thought leader like Kanye West goes out there, takes a chance at the peril of his own brand, his personal safety, right? I brought you yesterday how the Crips gang was given an alert by some guy named Daz Dillinger an old music partner, Snoop Dogg, to attack Kanye West. But Kanye West goes out there at the peril of his brand, at the peril of his revenue, at the peril of his own personal safety, of his family. And he says some really uncomfortable things that need to be said. He's attacked by all sides, attacked by black America, white America, liberals. But he's right. He's right. And if a Kanye West can't go out there and say it, who can? If the black community isn't going to, Least, I'm not saying they have to listen and fall in lockstep with Kanye West, but if they're not at least going to open their minds and say, wait a second, maybe some things Kanye West is saying ring true. Maybe we should give some credence to a little bit of what he's saying. Well, that's not happening. Then I don't know how, how we get out of the epidemics of black-on-black crime. I don't know how we take certain communities in this country and, and really help them do better for themselves. Even Democrats are sick of Hillary Clinton, and now they want their money back. This from, believe it or not, the Huffington Post politics section. Title is, some Democrats want Hillary Clinton to return the DNC's money the National Party agreed to pay $1.65 million for her campaign email list and other resources. And now, several Democratic officials are asking Hillary to return the cash. They want her to return the money that the Democratic National Committee, the DNC, paid her political group for, uh, you know, her com- a campaign email list and other resources. Here, let me read you this part of this HuffPost story. <laughs> In February 2017, the DNC agreed to pay Clinton's group Onward Together 1.65 million for her campaign email list analytics, donor data, and related items. The Intercept uh, reported on Wednesday, oh, today is an early story. The cash of material was worth more than five million dollars. Clinton's campaign made an in-kind donation of resources worth 3.5 million, and the DNC paid for the rest. Let me break that down for you. It's very, very common. President Trump's email list, his analytic data, the voter profiles, everybody who voted is probably at this point, because he won the election, despite all odds, worth in the tens of millions of dollars. The Trump campaign can do a couple of things with that. That's what the Hillary campaign did. The Hillary campaign had the option to do a couple of things with that, both campaigns. They can sell it to the Republican National Committee. They can sell part of it to the big data company. They can make part of it what's called an in-kind donation. So the campaign gives these things to the Republican National Committee or in Hillary's case, the Democratic National Committee, and they get credit for an in-kind donation to that committee of fair market value. So say Trump's worth $10 million and the RNC paid him $3 million and he gave him the rest. He would be credited, his campaign would be credited with a $7 million in-kind donation. Very common in politics. Happens on every level. Governors do it on the state level. State representatives do it on the local level. Uh, Presidential candidates, presidential, uh, uh, those who win the presidential elections do it on the national level. However, a number of Democratic Party officials, including some Democratic State Party chairs and members of the national DNC, want Clinton to retroactively return the money. They want her to donate campaign materials to the DNC, ongoing, and return the 1.65 million. Alabama Democratic Party Chairwoman Nancy Worley, who supported Clinton, said, quote, she should return the money for the love of the Democratic Party to the DNC for its use. And the reason is Democrats are facing a massive fundraising deficit compared to the Republicans. The DNC is raising far less than the RNC. Wisconsin Democratic Party Chairwoman Martha Laning and Missouri Democratic National Committee woman Curtis Wilde Likewise, called on Hillary to return the money. Now, in states, I'll explain who these people are. In a state, you have a chairman of the party. Okay, so every state party, whether it be Republican or Democrat, is chartered by the RNC or the DNC. That party has a chairperson. Then you have what are called committee people. You have a committee man and a committee woman. A state committee man or a committee woman are the representatives to that state's party from the county. Uh, uh, parties. A national committee man or committee woman is the representative from that state. So there are two. There's always a committee man and a committee woman. They're the representatives from the state party to the national party. So this woman, committee woman, a national Democratic, Missouri De- Democratic National Committee woman, Curtis Wild, she would be the representative, the female representative, of the committee woman. counterpart would be the committee man from the Missouri Democratic Party to the DNC, to the Democratic National Committee. She's a very high-ranking official. There are only 50 of her around the country. That's why I'm putting it in perspective for you. So the state chairman, state chairwoman rather, and uh, the state committee woman from Missouri, the state chairwoman from Wisconsin, there's only 50 of each of them around the country. They are both calling for Hillary to return that money. These are very powerful people within the Democratic Party. These are not some you know, local precinct committee person of which there are thousands and thousands and thousands around the country. These are very significant players. Calling on Hillary to return the money. Also, uh, Democratic Nebraska Democratic Party chairwoman Jane Kleeb, who supported Bernie Sanders, though, she argued Clinton can contribute could contribute the equivalent. So give. So in other words, Clinton got 1.65 million. She wants her she wants Clinton's campaign or Clinton's PAC or whatever wherever the money is now to give that same 1.65 million back to state Democratic parties, split it across the country or give it to big states, or give it to states that are red, that they want to turn blue. Other DNC officials, including at-large member Brian Wabi, and Kansas Democratic National Committee man, I explained the committee man, committee woman, man named Chris Reeves, only 50 of him around the country, they also welcomed an in-kind donation from Hillary, saying it would be the Christian thing to do. Uh, Nick Merrill, a Clinton spokesman, defended the $1.65 million price tag, Saying that the DNC has already reaped far more than it paid for the email list. In other words, Hillary's saying, "I give you a deal; you're not getting a dime." That's classic Hillary. He wrote, "Quote: Paying a rental fee for use of an email list is common practice, and in this case, the DNC has raised over thirty million dollars with it—an eighteen hundred percent return on their investment." Never thought I'd say this, but I agree with Nick Merrill. I agree with the Hillary Clinton campaign. Now, the DNC itself is saying, uh, DNC spokesman. How to his name. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name. X-O-C-H-I-T-L. Hina Josa. I don't know how to pronounce. Hinojosa, uh, I don't know how to pronounce. Jochitl, I don't know. A DNC spokeswoman agree, uh, agreed that the DNC had gotten, quote, a return on our investment and more since obtaining all of the lists and data, end quote. But look. Hillary Clinton is never going to return any money. Now, Onward Together, where the money went, is a nonprofit, not required. It's 501c4, so it's not required to disclose financial data. doesn't have to tell you what it takes in. doesn't have to give you an itemized list of what it spends, unlike a traditional campaign. But it says it has distributed grants to 11 progressive groups, uh, including, let's read where they've uh, given their money. They have their partner organizations are, this is Onward Together, Hillary Clinton's uh, Hillary Clinton's hack. And it's born from conversations between Governor Howard Dean and Secretary Hillary Clinton in the aftermath of the 2016 election. Onward Together was established to lend support to leaders, particularly young leaders, kicking off projects and founding new organizations to fight for our shared progressive values. So their partner organizations a group called Color for Change, Emerge America, Indivisible, the Indivisible Movement, have gotten very violent, Swing Left, and Run for Something. In December they added, of 2017, they added six more groups, Alliance for Youth Action, Arena Summit, Collective Pack, I Vote Fund, Latino Victory, and Voto Latino. In other words, Hillary Clinton took that 1.65 million, and I'm sure many, many millions more, and alongside far-left Howard Dean, donated support. port run, control far left radical groups that I would venture a guess if we dug into them are involved in these Antifa protests, in disrupting conservative speakers on campus, uh, probably involved in the protests around the Mueller investigation, you know, uh, pushing this Russia collusion narrative. It says this is how they help. Financial support, direct grants, fundraising support, online amplification, online amplification, in-person surrogate assistance, meaning sticking people at protests. One-to-one introductions and meetings with donors and convenings. Getting George Soros in a room. Give more money to these. Uh, another way they do it. Strategic and leadership advice. Mentorship training. One-on-one introductions with expert advisors and convenings. Nice way to say event. Recognition. Online endorsement. Surrogate support. Offline and event mentions. Membership building. Growing their organization. Hillary's not giving the DNC a dime back. but What the DNC realizes, what the state people realize is their states are suffering. Because of Hillary's disastrous loss, because of the Democrats' disastrous policies, they can't raise money despite the DNC and Hillary people saying they're raising money. They can't raise money. $30 million is nothing. It's $6 million a state. It goes like that. Nothing for candidates. They can't raise any money. The Republicans are out raising them. The inspector general's report is coming out. The Democrats are going to look terrible. not going to be a blue wave in November. I think there might be a red wave. The Democrats might pick up a couple of seats, but Republicans will most likely. And now this is being supported by new information on the generic congressional ballot. Republicans will most likely hold the House and Senate. The Democrats are scrambling. They need money. And now they're going to throw Hillary under the bus to try to get some.